Open your Bibles to 1 John. 1 John chapter 5, and we're going to look at verses 6 through 12 this morning. And John has been, he's been you know, encouraging us, and we've talked about this often as we've been working through this book, about assurance, right? Growing in our assurance last week, and the things that we want to see happening in our lives and developing. And, and uh, John, kind of really with that theme, he kind of steps into this, this mode of believing, Right? How do we believe in what we believe? And specifically, believing God's testimony. He's going to kind of unfold that for us this morning. Believing God's testimony, I, you know, that's, that's kind of what it is. I know sometimes my, my sermon titles are just wonderful, and you go home and tell others about them. My titles are just incredible, but this one's pretty straightforward. <laughs> I remember one time asking a secretary, you know, here's my sermon, and what are you going to call that? I don't know. And I explained the sermon. What do you think I should call this? Because it was always like the the one thing that I always seem to struggle with, but um, anyway, that's, that's not important either. Uh, but we're going to talk about believing, and John's going to come to this idea, and I think this is, 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 of course, the Word of God speaks today, and it's, I think it's very important for us uh, to understand what he is saying in this passage. I'm sure many of you have had conversations with those who might be, you might call skeptics, or who might have referred to those who believe on Christ as this is some type of a psychological thing. Right? It's some type of made up. Maybe it's a, just a purely subjective experience and they just kind of write it off like that. I don't know if you've had that experience or not, but uh, I think we see that in our day. Some people refer to it as, as a mental illness, right? Christianity, I can't believe this is happening. And, and so for us this morning, we, we, we might have this conversation where we say, you know, the Lord has changed my life. You know, we talk often about your testimony. What is your testimony? I was challenging our men Saturday morning. You should, you should take some time and condense your testimony. It's like a two-minute presentation. Always have it ready. Because you, you may come and have this conversation. What is your testimony? It is, I was blind, but now I see. It is the gospel, right? And you're able to weave the fact that God is real and He's changed my life and this is who He is. And you can weave it right into who you are because it, it's all part of us, right? We, all have, we have different experiences in life, but really we can, we can boil that down to saying I was a sinner, right? That was me, or about you, but then Christ came into my life and He changed me, right? And this is the change, and we always want to have that ready. But what do we say to people you have shared that with who say, well, that's, that's good for you. It's, you know, I mean, that works for you. It's kind of relative. I mean, you know, you go on your way, and, and uh, I'll, I'll find my own deal, find my own thing. So how do we kind of respond maybe to some of these, uh, these arguments to people who think, well, this is just simply to be written off. You can't have an assurance of truth. Right? You don't know this, or it's not done upon you know, whatever it might be. But John comes, and throughout this letter, he has, he has been speaking to his apostolic authority. Right, He who hears us, him and the other apostles, they're writing the Word. And what is he saying? Those who come and, and trust the authority of Scripture, these are the ones who can know and can believe and have confidence. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis talking about authority. He says, Believing things on authority only means believing them because you have been told them by someone you think is trustworthy. He says, 99% of things you believe are believed on authority. I believe there is such a place as New York. I cannot prove by abstract reasoning that there is such a place. I believe it because reliable people have told me so. The ordinary person believes in the solar system and atoms and the circulation of blood on authority because scientists have said so. Every historical statement is believed on authority. None of us have seen the Norman conquest or the defeat of the Spanish Armada. 
armada, but we believe them simply because people who did see them have left writings that tell us about them, in fact, on authority. And he concludes by saying, a person who balked at authority in other things, as some people do in religion, right, especially in Christianity, would have to be content to know nothing at all in this life. It's simply we can't know by testimony, by authority. So John comes to, that, to this moment and he says, look, this is it. Right? He's going to lay it out for us this morning. This is God's testimony. And he kind of presents it in a way for you and I to either say, here it is, I believe it, or no, I reject it. So this is what he says. This is in uh, verse 6 of chapter 5 of 1 John. And he says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness. Because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which He has testified of his son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. In verse 12 he says, He who has the Son has life he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Let me offer a brief prayer this morning. Lord, thank you for this time you've given to us that we can lift our voices and worship you in spirit. And now, Lord, we come and continue in the attitude of truth. We desire to hear from your word. I ask that you'd open our eyes and our ears to hear it. You allow me to get out of the way, Lord, that all focus and attention would be upon you. And I pray this. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I said earlier, John has been explaining to us what this whole Christian thing is about. right? He's, he's writing to a band of, of brothers and sisters. They've come together and they've, they've kind of gone through some storms. Right? And the early church is, is, is full of storms. And they've had these Gnostic people who were a part of their fellowship at one point, And then they went out from them. And John has this moment where he encourages them and he says, hey, they were never part of us. They went out from us because they were never part of us. You can imagine the kind of confusion. Well, well who's got it right, John? Which, one, which way is it? I mean, is it, is it this way? Or these guys are saying they've got a better version of Jesus. They think, you know, Jesus was just an emanation or some type of spirit, this Gnostic heresy that's floating around. And John says, no, 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 no. They go around calling themselves the Gnostics, which means the knowing ones. It's kind of arrogant, isn't it? Imagine walking around going, I'm the knowing one. I'm part of the knowing group, right? He says, no. In reality, they may think that, and they, they might be confused, but you, in fact, are the knowing ones. You have believed upon Christ. And he has stressed this throughout this letter. We come up to it once again, over and over again, where he talks about who are these genuines, these legitimate true believers of Christ. And, and he has some wonderful marks, and we can attest to them. Followers of Christ, well, they believe the truth about Jesus Christ. 
John has been explaining to us about these commandments and about this love and about this growth and righteousness and all these things that build to this idea of assurance. He's saying, man, you can know that you're saved. That's wonderful news. I could like that. In a world of confusion, a world of chaos, even in the middle of this letter, he says, hey, you can know something here. Right? He's used the word gnosko. That's the Greek word for know. And he's used it over and over and over again. What do you know? We know this about Christ and believers. We say, yes, he's the, the son of God. Right? He is the one who, who gave of himself, gave of his life in an amazing way for, on, uh, on the cross for us. We also believe in God's commandments. We believe in obeying them. Jonah stressed that, hasn't he? It's not a new commandment I give to you. This is an old commandment, one we've had for a while. This is what he said. You should love one another. Sometimes that's difficult, right? Some of you are looking at me like, yeah, I don't know if I love our pastor right now. <laughs> but there it is. Aren't these defining marks? And why is that so important? John says, this is it. Why is it so important? Because he tells us. And not only is God holy, he is light, and, and he's also love, but we also realize you know, no one has seen him. No one has seen God. He tells us that right in the letter. And he says, you know, if God is love, this is in God's presence is manifested. Well, there should be love there, right? Otherwise, there's something else going on. You've got some other type of assembly happening, right? It's not a band of brothers and, and, and sisters coming together in the name of Christ. There should be love. It should be an identifying marker. He says, this is what it is. This is the authentic thing. And he comes and he says, look, this is it. But he also comes in a way of authority. If you remember back in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, John says this, right? That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. Here we have the primary source of John, right? He's the guy that's got the inside story. He can say, you know what? Jesus likes to eat his sandwich this way, crust first, right? He kind of has those kind of stories that you and I don't have. And that's what he's saying. I was there. I've walked with him, right? I've cried with him. I've laughed with him. I'm the one who ran to the tomb. I'm the guy who saw it empty. And at this moment, this is where I believed. And he's saying this, right? That which we've, was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life. Right? John is talking about eternal life in our passage this morning, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen, what we have heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We have a primary source. And we, it's interesting if you go back to, to C.S. Lewis's quote there about authority. I, I've, I didn't see the Spanish harmonica get in sync, but I believe it, right? And so here he's saying, look, here is the authority. We come back to this passage and John's saying, I'm, I'm one that has walked with him. I've seen it. I've seen the sweat come off his face, off his brow. I've, I've seen it all. I and mean, what is he in essence saying to us? Christianity is not some type of myth. It's not just a, a subjective thing. It is part of that, but it first starts objectively. It's not some made-up worldview or some type of philosophy. Paul was always quick not to take Christianity and stack it along all these other philosophies as a viable option. You see, he cut it across the board, and none of that works. There's only one way. And John is saying that this morning. This is him. I've walked with him. Right? I've been there. I've done this. And so he kind of leads us into this passage this morning where he's been building, if you will, like a crescendo of, of our assurance as it's growing. And he kind of just comes and he says, look, here it is. Here's the, the, the testimony God has given us, point blank. 
And remember, through all of this, John doesn't give us, he doesn't allow us to have a gray area. Right? The Bible never does that. He never says, you know what? You can kind of just walk the fence. Nope, you either have to be pro-Christ, right, or anti, against him. And that's what John has been telling us about, the spirit of the Antichrist. It's here, you're either for or against. You can't have it both ways. So he comes to this, and then I just kind of want to simply walk through these, these uh, moments here where I'm going to talk about this testimony, God's testimony. And it's going to lead to this moment where we have to come to a conclusion on the matter. He brings us to a conclusion. I love the way John thinks, but he begins in verse 6 with what I'm calling the historical testimony. This is the historical testimony. He kind of begins like here's a moment in time, part of the gospel, right? For God so loved the world, he sent his son. There's a moment in our history where Jesus came. This is the first part of verse 6, where he says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not only water, but by water and and the blood. So John begins this historical testimony of Jesus saying, this is He. Right? You kind of have this feeling that it all kind of wraps to this moment going, this is it. Let me, let me quiet you down. Sit down here and listen to this. This is Him. I know what the Gnostics are saying, and we'll talk about this here in a moment. This is what's happening. And he's kind of battling some bad uh, ideas floating around, things that are challenging them. But he says, look, clear all that away. And this is this is who it is. This is Christ. Kind of points us right back to the end of, of verse uh, 5 of chapter 5 where he has this rhetorical question where he says in verse 5, Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? That's the rhetorical statement. Of course, this is the one who overcomes. We believe he's the Son of God. He says, this is him. Let me tell you about him. He's the one who came by the water. And the blood, he's not a myth. It's not some kind of conjured up thing. It's not something that somebody made up. It's not whatever, whatever paradigm or view that some type of naturalist or new age or atheist might say about him. John is saying, this is it. I've walked there. Here he it is. Right? This, is, this is where the rubber meets the road. This person, he came. There is a moment in our history where Christ has come. He's entered in. Why should we all be evangelists? Or excuse me, missionaries? Well, evangelists too. That'll work. Because God so loved the world, He sends. God loves His disciples. Jesus loves His disciples. He sends them, right? Puts us on mission. He came. There is an historical event in our history where Christ entered in. And John says, here's how He did it. He came by the water. There's a few different interpretations, but the most, I think, majority of the scholars believe that this refers to His baptism. And, and the point of, of this whole uh, teaching here is, is to combat, really, the idea of Gnosticism and their, their view, their doctrine of docetism, which is was what they believe that Jesus was a spirit, some type of emanation that came, and He didn't really appear to suffer. And they had this idea that, that this baby was born, and while He was born, the Spirit, the divine Christ, if you will, you know, it came into this baby. And then he grew to be a man, and all these things happened, and, and so on and so forth. And he, he grew to this place, and then right before he died, the Spirit leaves him, and that's kind of how it happened. So the, the real divine Christ never suffered, and John is going to combat that. And he's going to say, no, 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 no. This is the whole deal. We're going to talk about his testimony, this moment where he came and he was baptized. Right? We have this moment in history. This happened, and we have you know, the God the Father saying, this is my beloved Son, who I'm well pleased, and testifying to this. We see the Spirit come down, and John's saying, no, this is, this is who He is. From beginning to end, He is the Christ, 
the Son of the living God, regardless of what these Gnostics are holding on to, this is historically testified to. The person of Christ. All the Gospels, right, all pick up on this. They all write about this. And John's desire is to emphasize that Christ is the divine Son of God. Right? And it leads to naturally, why did He come? It's going to lead to this whole idea of, of, of the blood, Right? He's coming to sacrifice himself. And so John just goes on and says, look, not only was he Christ, the divine son, at the moment of, of, of him being baptized and going through all this and carrying on to the cross, no, he actually suffered through it. The Spirit didn't depart on the cross before he died. Jesus gave up his Spirit when it was done. But he shed his blood. And this is what John is saying. You know, the Hebrew writer picks up on kind of these themes in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, where it says, how much more then? How much more? The blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God. He offered Himself, cleansed our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. See, it's very important in John's understanding of this, this kind of testimony, of God's testimony, this, historically this thing is, has happened, this event, if you will, has happened in history, and Jesus came by the water and the blood. He is the true Son of God. The, you know, the baptism marks His public ministry, His earthly ministry to redeem, right? Fallen mankind. And His death marks, right, the satisfactory sacrifice for our sin. And this is it. And John wants no confusion over this. And I'm sure you've heard different stories. Maybe, maybe not the Gnostic uh, version of this, but other people who try to, to place other things in there. And I think John's point is to say, if you, if you deny this morning the, the doctrine of, of substitutionary atonement, whether you deny it or you place something else there, if you're placing your hope in something other than Christ and Him alone, John was saying, I don't think you are one with God. You have no hope in essence. He would say this is, this is pointless. You are still eternally lost if you're trusting anything else. How important is this, right? Outside of, of you and I, this objective moment in history, Christ has come and He's did this. And John says this, right? This is, is factual. This is authority. I can write upon this. And you can trust this. He came by the water and the blood. And you have to, you have to conclude it, right? How, how is it that, that uh, God who is light, as John tells us, right? He's holy. How is it that you and I, right, sinners, can come to Him? John stresses the idea of, of, of liar. He uses the word liar. That's politically not correct, right? John, how can you call us liars? But he's used that over and over again to say we have no sin. Say I'm right with God outside of Christ to deny Him. It's to make God a liar because God is saying what John is saying outside of Christ there is no hope. And he's factual. It's a history, a historical testimony. John goes on and he builds on this and what I'm calling is my second point, the active testimony. Right? It's the work of the Holy Spirit. The second part of 6 going on to 9 he says, and this is the Spirit who bears witness. Because the Spirit is truth. In verse 7, it says, For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. 
And he says, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his son. So here we have this, that in the spirit who bears witness, the ongoing present tense of this testimony. This is why I call it an active. Right? So John is saying, look, historically this has happened in history. We see Jesus came. He was born by the water and the blood. Here it is. He's gone to the cross. He is the one who paid for our, our sin. He was the propitiation. And John uses that word uh, for our sins. And he goes on and says there's an active uh, testimony, if you will. The, the spirit of truth reveals this to us. It's ongoing. We become witnesses. right? We believe in the testimony. We trust in the authority of God's Word because we know the Spirit is at work. It testifies internally of the objective reality, right? Let me say that again. It testifies internally to us of this objective reality that happened in history. John says in, in his Gospel, chapter 16, verses uh, 13 and 14, But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. The spirit of truth comes. And why is that? Well, John simply tells us because he is truth. The spirit, the water, and the blood, they agree as one. They're all in agreement about who this Christ is. John stresses the idea here for us that the Spirit is, in essence, bringing to life right, His apostolic testimony. He who hears us, we refer to that today as the Bible, right, the historical witness, the truth of Christ's humanity, His deity, His, his work upon the cross. All these things that you and I as followers of Jesus become real to us, simply not simply because of the historical fact, but because we believe them. And this is a work of the active work of the Holy Spirit. And so I think John's point here in stressing this is that the Holy Spirit's testimony and the Spirit-inspired testimony of the water and the blood have this sole purpose. To unequivocally declare the historical man Jesus of Nazareth is in fact the divine Son of God. He is the only Savior and King and He alone can bring eternal life. So here we have, this is you know, God's testimony believing god's testimony there's a historical moment it is an ongoing active moment that today you and i believe because the spirit is bringing it alive we trust it he is the spirit of truth he goes on into verse 9 and says if we receive the witness of men i think we can identify quite quickly with this and i think this pushes us right back to the beginning where we talk about authority and the things that we do accept today whether we've seen them or not based on someone else's testimony right you believe the witness of men we had two or three yes they've seen it okay i believe it and yet we come to scripture maybe sometimes we have a challenge here right and john has been going and he's been telling us look here is the list here's all the things that i've walked with him we've talked with him here's what we can believe and he goes on to tell us the witness of god is greater Right? If you do this, if you believe the witness of men, if you have this kind of confidence that there are some witnesses, they did all this and this moment in history, how much more can we believe this? How much more can we believe God's testimony? You can see now how John is forcing us to deal with, right? You've got to deal with the text. You have to come to a conclusion. And he's driving us that way that we would come and say, this is it. It's either this or the other. God's witness is greater. 
I think there's a moment in all of our lives where if you find yourself, if there's anything happening or, or you have a desire to kind of go away, I wouldn't say a desire, an unearthly, un, un, uh, a sinful desire, we could call it, it leads you away from Scripture, should be an indicator. You know, if God's witness is demonstrated by the truth of His Word, and if we come to His Word and we're not desiring this or we're desiring some other type of authority, we could say, well, we're departing away from God in that moment and we're trusting something else. It's kind of John's point, saying, look, if you're believing the witness of two or three or others on, over this over here, and you're not trusting what the Word of God says, well, then you, you're kind of departing what God is saying. You kind of departed that. And he goes and he leads that, and naturally leads into this point where we say we have to conclude that God's lying about this, at least this one moment over here. Now, you and I would never say that, hopefully, right? But, but in reality, that's what John is pushing us to, to open our eyes to see. If I believe the authority over here and I do this, you know, and this, you know, it works its way into our theology quite subtly. Maybe you've had moments in your life where maybe you've, you kind of like your way of going about it, right? So you try to justify it. And so if I do these things this way and I use this one scripture that I, I'll pull out of context and I'll use it to kind of support what I'm doing, well, then I can justify what I'm doing. And the Pharisees were great at that. They were rewriting Scripture. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had to come and fix it. You have heard it said, but I'm going to tell you what it, the reality is. So anything, in our, and I think this is the idea, that if the Spirit is going to be a witness of the truth, where is the truth? It's found in God's Word. There is nothing outside of God's Word that has more value, has more dignity, has more certainty, and therefore more authority than His truth. So if there is a moment or desire where we feel that well, I'm going to lead away or I'm going to trust something else or I'm going to use something else to, to, to validate or support, we're placing that above Scripture. And we have to realize that this is where our, our, our testimony comes from, is it not? Historical facts found in God's Word, right? The ongoing active testimony of the Holy Spirit, it's found in God's Word. The Bible has greater significance and therefore greater trustworthiness. Now, I mean, I know many of us this morning would say, Pastor, you're driving this point home. I think I got this one, right? I love the Word. There's no problems there. And all simply I want to draw to your attention is how easy it is for us to slide one way or another. We can slide into legalism and, and justify it by my actions or whatever. We can slide into some type of free grace thing where we're or out doing something crazy and still trying to justify it. What I'm doing, we're all along. The Lord wants us to come in humility. He wants us to be corrected by His Word, to trust it, to grow in it and see our sanctification developing and our genuine love for others to grow. That in us, He would be glorified. So the question we would have to, to, to ask ourselves this morning is, are you believing it? Right? Are you trusting it? God's witness was brought forth in the past and it has current abiding results. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the Spirit is at work? Do you see it growing in yourself? So we see the active um, testimony, and naturally it leads to um, my next point in verse 10, the internal testimony. And they have to go together, and of course John is writing this way. And you see it, he says in verse 10, He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. Naturally, we just talked about this inward work of the Spirit, right? And he who does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his son. 
So John is talking about believing. He has this idea of a personal commitment, a trust, where your life is heading this direction. He says, this believer has a commitment to Christ. Christ means something to me. He's more than just uh, some type of person that we hear in in history or uh, a moment or whatever it might be. But you say, you know what? He's my Savior. He's my Lord. And he's saying, this is a person who believes. And this is a person who can operate in confidence. We have the internal testimony. Right? We see the, the external witness of the Spirit-inspired Word, which becomes alive in us, and it becomes this internal testimony by His Spirit. And through His Word, John says in his Gospel, chapter 14, 15 through 23, he says, If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept Him because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. But you know Him, for He lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live. And when we just sing about that, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and he will come to them and make our home with them. John is saying this internal testimony is the way it's working itself out. You can't just make this up or, or create some type of manifestation. It is a changed life. He's been talking about this in our growth and our sanctification. right? Who I am. It's not what I do in Christianity. It's who I am, and it shows itself. And he, and he drives this home by creating a contrast, does he not? He says, this is the person who has a witness. Do you have a personal commitment? Christ means something to me. This is how it manifests itself in my life and to others. And then he says, look, here's the one who doesn't have it, just so we're clear on this. All right, he goes on and he says, he who does not believe has made him a liar. Again, we have to say, John, that's pretty harsh. This is a person who says, you know, I, I've, heard, I've heard the gospel. Um, sounds really good. Um, but I think I'll go my own way. I think what God is saying there isn't really real. I think it's not true. This is how we can say, you know, you're making God to be a liar. God says, look, there's only one way. Come to heaven, that's through His Son. And we have to conclude a person who makes this statement that says God's not right or God is a liar is a person who's lost in their sin. They're not thinking clearly, right? We say this needs a work of the Spirit. And John is saying, look, this, this person is, has made God to be a liar, and that's true to life, isn't it not? When we see those who are, are sick and are in need of a physician, if you don't want to go to the doctor if I'm okay, right? And we see this over and over again. And John has pointed this out. And, and again, dealing with the Gnostics who have said, we don't, we don't sin, we're above all of it. And he says in, in chapter 1, verse 9, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him be a liar and his word is not in us. He's saying the same thing. If we're going on saying, you know what? I think there's a better way. I mean, is that not what the Gnostics are saying? Is that not what the Gnostics are, are pushing? Right? You know, there's a, there's a better way. And, and John here, of course, with the authority of the Holy Spirit, is telling us there is only one way. And here's how you can believe God's testimony. It's a historical fact. There is the active testimony of the Spirit who brings it to life. 
should be dwelling in you, this internal commitment you have to Christ. It should be dwelling in you and growing in you. And we see the response, the contrast. He paints it for us and says, look, here's one that follows. Has he not done this before? There, there are those who follow after Christ. He's the lineage of Abel, right? They follow this way, righteousness. Sons of the king, right? And those who are of the devil, the evil one, Cain. He sets this, and over and over again, he comes once again, he sets this contrast, and he says, look, just so you're not confused on this, you see this in you, you can have confidence, you're a witness to the truth, you're believing God's testimonies about his son, but if you don't, you don't have this happening, you are, what you would say, a liar, calling God a liar. This is a pretty amazing statement because Titus 1-2 says, right, and the hope of eternal life which God who does not lie promises before the beginning of time. Just so Scripture backs up Scripture, God does not lie. Of course we know that. And he says, this is the unbelief because he who has not believed the witness that God has borne concerning his Son. There is, once again, no in-between. Ignorance and non-committal are tantamount to unbelief. And that's the truth. And John drives this, right? He's, he seems like he's kind of honing in. We start with historical, and we start with the spirit, then we, we kind of get in this internal where, yeah, I'm starting to, the rubber's meeting the road here. I'm seeing it in my life, or I'm not seeing it. And then he kind of just says, you know what? I'm not going to blow any punches here. I'm just going to hit you right between the eyes. And this is uh, point four, which is verse 11, which I'm calling the direct testimony. It becomes very direct here, and he says in verse 11, and this is the testimony. In case you've missed it to this point, in case you were sleeping to this point, in case the pastor wasn't yelling enough to this point, right, here it is. And he says that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. So none of us should walk out of here and say, I'm not sure what he means. Here it is, quite uh, frankly, quite direct. He says, this is it. I want to cause you to go this direction. I want you to follow the straight course. It is Christ alone. There is no other. And here is the action of God. It is ongoing throughout Scripture. For God so loved the world, He sins. And God has given us. What has He done? He's given us eternal life to you and I who don't deserve it. Right? Until we understand the contrast between God's holiness and our lostness. Until we get those figured out, then the gospel shines so bright. We say, Lord, thank you. Thank you, you love me. I don't know about you, but there are moments in my life where I thought I was a pretty good person. I'm, I'm good. I don't, I don't talk back to my parents as a kid. I didn't do any of that kind of stuff. And there's stories, no doubt, right? But there's a, I'm pretty good. We, may, we can conclude that. But it wasn't until God opened my eyes that I realized I was running as fast as I could to hell. As fast as I could, and I was helping others. No, it's over here. Come with me, right? I mean, it's just metaphorically, but we see this in our lives. And it's not until God opens it that we see that God, it's your grace. And here John is very direct. And there's some wonderful verses that we need to commit to memory. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. You didn't conjure this thing up. You didn't go, you know what? Let's sit in a room here and let's work this thing together. Here's how we'll do it. It didn't work that way. You didn't want any of this. Just like Isaiah says, we looked upon him. There's nothing we desire in this Jesus on the cross. No, not one seeks after God. No, not one, as Paul says. Romans 3, whether it's Psalms 14. We didn't want him. We're only part of him, but God's grace. It's not by works. No one's going to boast. We're not going to have that moment in heaven where we're saying, Lord, you're so, aren't you so glad I chose you? 
It's not going to happen. <laughs> Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. In Jesus Christ, our Lord. John says this, us, right? He's giving it to us. He's talking to his, to his readers of his letters, but it has profound impact. It's for us this morning. This morning, you're not sure. You're on the outside. You don't know where, you're, where you stand in regard to this. If this truth is hitting you between the eyes, and this is the most important doctrine, let's be honest, all the doctrines are important, but this one, where are you going to spend eternity? I think we should figure that one out. We better know it with confidence. And John's saying this all builds to, to verse 13 where he says, you can know today, right now, you can know do I believe in this? God has given His gift. There's no way I can earn it. This Jesus, He has come. And John has told you, you believe on Him, you have eternal, of course you have eternal life. He's talking about it. It's a gift from God. It's found in His Son. The work He did on the cross. And then He gives us another little of a contrast, right? The alternative is what? Death and separation from God. It is hell. You know, I think you, you, it doesn't take long. Maybe you've had conversations or maybe you know of loved ones or friends who, who are unsure of this truth. You know, that, that sounds good. Maybe, you know, it saddens and breaks my heart when you hear those who've been in church. So I've given it a, I gave it a try. It didn't work for me. I've had people in tears in, in front of me say, there's no hope for me. I'm lost. Moments where I put my arms around and said, you know, let's come back to the cross. Let's look once again how God loves us. And yet today, so many people are going so many different ways, trusting so many different things. We'll look at this and say, well, these Christians, they're, they've got a mental illness. They've got, they've got issues. Uh, that's some type of subjective feeling, some type of psychological, I don't know, something, I don't know what it is. And yet, John is saying it, it's historical. It's a moment in our history where this happened. It's active. God doesn't cease to be who He is. It's eternal. The Spirit jumps in me. We sing songs, we hear His word, yes, yes, and amen. That is truth. It's direct. It's direct. And this all leads to the last point here where in verse 12 where I'm simply calling it, this is the verdict, right? Here's the conclusion. You could say. In verse 12 he says, He who has the Son has life. And he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. We notice that the word has, right? It's, it's in present tense. We're saying if you this morning speaking to believers, if you're here this morning, I believe on Christ and I know this to be true. I believe in God's testimony. He's saying, look, here it is. You've got life. You've got it eternally. It's with you, right? And this is naturally going to build right into the next verse where he tells us we can have assurance. And, and yet he says, this is the verdict and, and this is the confidence we can have. But he also gives us and he paints this picture for those who are on the other side. He does not have the Son, does not have life. There was an archaeologist who 
they've dug up the first century cemeteries in Greece and Rome, and they found many tombstones that bear in Greek and Latin the inscription, No Hope. Can you imagine living your whole life, no hope? It comes to the end of your days and there's no hope. An eternal night, there's no hope. John says in chapter 3, verse 36 of his gospel, he says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And this morning, if you're here and you're not completely sure, if you're believing God's testimony, I don't know what else to, to, to place in front of you. John is very clear and to the point. He's saying, look, historically, it is, it is factual. The Spirit brings it to life in us. We should be seeing this internal change and desire. He's been talking about these tests throughout his letter. Do you see this growing? Do you see it happening? Do you see a genuine love? Do you want to be around other believers because God has done something in you? And you want to be around others he's doing something in. You see this. You have a hunger for his commandments, his, his, his truth. That's you this morning, you're unsure today needs to be a day of salvation. You place your life, your trust in Christ and Him alone. John Stott has said, he said, unbelief is not a misfortune to be pitied. It is a sin to be deplored. Its sinfulness lies in the fact that it contradicts the word of the one true God and thus attributes falsehood to Him. How do we come to Him? We simply repent of our unbelief. God, forgive me for trusting in other means, other ways. Let me trust in Christ and Him alone. Let me believe His testimony. May I have the confidence of eternal life found in Him and Him only. That's the verdict. See, John has no gray area. It's either one or the other. And this morning, if you know Christ, we should be in an attitude of thankfulness and praise because this was accomplished not by you or by me, by Christ. And it should also lead us to a heart, right? A heart that breaks for the lost. Because there is a day where God's wrath will be poured out. We don't know when, but there is a day. And we should do all that we can, strive with all that we are, to see those who don't know come to know Him. With that, let's bow our heads, let's pray this morning.